This podcast is a proud member of the That Moment In Podcast Network. Check out the network at thatmomentin.com. Hey, you're not going to bed yet, are you? That's right. It's time for TV Good, Sleep Bad. Daniel Lackey, and Elwood Jones. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of TV Good Sleep Bad. I'm your host as always, Elwood Jones from the Dead Hell. And joining me, of course, is my manservant and partner in crime, uh, Mr. Daniel Lackey. You could have told me that, you know, you, you needed a podcast. I could have gotten it for cheaper. <laughs> All we need is just a microphone, some recording equipment, and a small aubergine to make this show. What is an aubergine? Aubergine is an eggplant. Okay. That's, uh, I, I no idea why uh, it's named different things, but yeah, we call it an aubergine, and uh, you guys call it an eggplant. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Um, tonight, we are going to be talking about Goodness Gracious Me, as well as looking at the highly controversial yet truly wonderful Brass Eye. Um, but before we get into both of those, it's obviously time for what you've been watching. So, I mean, like obviously since the last show, I mean, what has been holding your interest, if anything? Um... The final season of The Americans is airing over here, and um, it's uh, just as uh, doom-laden and apocalyptic and uh, dark as I'd hoped it would be. And um, the, the, the the meme going around, in as much as there's any memes going around Amer- at The Americans, is uh, how Philip Jennings is the saddest man on television, <laughs> because uh, he's always got that just sort of look of complete and utter emotional crushed on his face. The, um, uh, the, the penultimate episode, which I have not watched aired last week and the finale is running this week. Yeah. I'm, uh, looking forward to seeing how this all wraps up. I think, yeah. I mean, the Americans is the show that I'm still way behind on. I mean, I'm still in season one. I think it has all the potential to be the new Breaking Bad, where if you got picked up by like some of the like Netflix, I mean at the moment you can watch it here on Amazon Prime, which I don't think is really sort of a valid streaming service. I don't think people really uh, sort of gravitate towards it, unlike say Netflix. So if Netflix were to ever get the rights of Amazon for the Americans, I think it could really take off and become that new Breaking Bad, that show that we're all sort of talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean I've enjoyed what I've seen, which is very little of it. So it's kind of weird where I'm still at the point where, you know, it's all Fleet and Soundtrack by Fleet with Max Tusk, and uh, it's all just basic sort of spy games at the minute, and you obviously talk about yeah. sort of Doom Laden, so it's a real kind of interesting uh, contrast there, but yeah, um, America's is something, it's one of the shows I'm, I say I'm going to watch more of, 
and then I just end up getting distracted by wanting to rewatch Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, that. That's currently where I'm. I am with it at the moment, but I am. I am going to watch more of it. I like what I've seen. So uh-huh. far. Yeah, it's. Um, I really like it. Uh, it does. Uh, it really kind of pulls off that. Uh, that Breaking Bad trick of seeming like it's about one thing, but it's really about another. Looking like it's like the sort of, um, you, you know, like how the, the, the sort of like crime drama. And, and, and I mean, like the crime drama is, is an important bit of it, but it's really kind of like the sort of family falling apart type thing. And that's the same thing with the Americans. And I, I like the, um, you know, I, I, I love the, uh, I just love how they, you know, Managed to kind of uh, interpolate the, you know, the spy games and the trade craft and all that kind of stuff with, uh, and the technical aspect with, um, you know, how this really kind of, uh, you know, my favorite, you know, I'm a fan of like John Lacara and stuff like that. So I, I mean, my favorite spy and espionage stories are always as much about the human cost as they are about, you know, the exciting spy stuff. Yeah. You know, so and that that's what I really, and that's what I really dig about the Americans. It's almost like, uh, uh, you know, a later cold war equivalent, you know, from the other side of like a George Smiley story. Okay. Um, I can uh, see that. I mean, it's, yeah, it's definitely the thing I, would, I like about the, what the Americans is, is that every time you question something about it, there's always an explanation normally shortly after you question it. So it's just like, uh, why don't they have like Russian accents? It's like, no, because they're being brought over here to infiltrate American society. So they have to be totally perfect. So that's why they don't mm-hmm. have Russian accents. And they must maintain this cover like all the time. Um, and certainly when it, you just like the base level sort of stuff, whereas them as agents were the first coming together. And it's like, you've got to portray yourself as as husband and wife. And you've got to be you've got to sell this and you've got to be comfortable right onto each other. And just their first sort of interactions of after being put together was just right, really interesting to see uh, when you see like bits and pieces of like their previous life uh, in, I guess, Soviet Russia. Uh, right. And you see how their training is under sort of taking it. It brought back memories of salt for some reason to me, which is never a bad thing. So, uh-huh. Uh, and I remember, um, you know, I did some, uh, Back in the mid-90s, late 90s, I did some research um, for a role-playing game campaign um, that uh, had a lot of a lot to do with um, with espionage and tradecraft and stuff like that. And that the, the Russians actually, the, the Soviets actually did that. They did actually embed uh, spies uh, in American society uh, as illegals. Uh, they called them illegals, and they were basically sleeper agents. Uh, posing as ordinary people next door during the Cold War. And that kind of always fascinated me. So, uh, you know, when they announced, um, and the guy who created it, uh, I think Weisberg, he, he's actually a former CIA case officer. So he's able to um, bring a lot of that knowledge. Um, and later on, I think it's in the second season, they deal with a lot of the kind of Sandinista stuff and actually brought uh, Colonel Oliver Northen is a co-writer on an episode. Oh, oh. So um, to, to get a lot of that kind of verisimilitude. But I think the the core of it really, particularly as it moves along to later seasons, is really the focus is kind of on the family and how this 
how how Philip and Elizabeth's choices have really kind of affected their lives, like their personal lives and the lives of their children. Yeah. And and how their their children are gonna, you know, the very much the sort of uh sins of the father type thing. Mm. Cool. Um, I mean, is there anything else to us? Just, just the Americans that's on your interest? Yeah, honestly, um, I haven't been really had a whole lot of time to watch a whole lot of other things other than, uh, I, I've been trying to keep up with, uh, with SVU. Um, my mother got me into, I've been watching some NCIS LA, um, which is a kind of a, like a, an SVU style. Yeah. I, not kind of, not kind of as, as as sleazy, or I didn't say sleazy, but as sensationalist as, um, or disturbing or dark as uh, SVU can get. It's, but it's very much kind of like the procedural comfort food. Oh yeah, Law and Order is great for for that sort of disposable. I know I've been catching up with all the original Law and Order because I never watched Law and Order, and I saw bits of Criminal Intent, um, but Special Victims Unit's always been my sort of chosen series. Uh, right. As much as it pains me now, it's, it's fallen way from what it used to be. Um, oh, yeah. When we look at, like, the, the golden sort of era for the show, which I think was really around sort of seasons three up until when Stabler left. Um, right. Certainly when Munch left the show, it, it, it was sort of like the death knell for the show, and now it's more it's more focused on Olivia and her adopted son, and the fact that she's the captain of this police force and she's constantly out in the field and solving everything. I mean, I've never seen like a leading officer do this much work since Mitch in Baywatch. Um, <laughs> the captain before he just used to sit in his office and drink scotch and occasionally show up in a crime scene with a flat cap. And that's why I wanted yeah. from him. But Olivia's like, she's always leading the case. She's always doing everything and only good in like leadership role when someone does something wrong. Um, it occasionally has some good moments, but it's it's not what it used to be for sure. It, it it's not what it used to be, and it certainly it hasn't really. I don't, and I agree that it hasn't really recovered from the loss of Chris Maloney and Richard Belzer. But the last few seasons, um, really to me, have uh, have been worth it just for the interplay between Mariska Hargitay and um, Raúl Esparza, the the the, the DA Barba. Um, okay. And it was especially humorous. This was especially funny when when going back and forth between SVU and Hannibal, uh, because Esparza played uh, Chilton on Hannibal, and it, it, it's um one it, it was it was just hilarious to you know you know go go back and forth and watch him to play this iteration of the Law and Order idealistic uh, DA, and then go and play Chilton. Uh, in, in Hannibal, Chilton starts off as basically the, the, the franchise's purest fool. And then somehow you end up in a sort of bizarre, but you know, bizarre world about halfway through season two, where all of a sudden Chilton's the voice of reason in, in an increasingly mad world. Um, but th- that's Hannibal. And I probably talked more about Hannibal than I need to. So. Yeah. Hannibal's one of those shows <laughs> I think we need to sit down and we do, we do. We'll do a, an episode on, on Hannibal, just to yeah. discuss it, because it's one I want to revisit. Because I watched it when it was originally on, and I kind of understood what was going on, but at the same time, it shot with such a, an unusual lens to it, um, that it's very different than, than what I was expecting. It also goes on a very different track than what was established already within the 
the Hannibal Cineverse. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, it's one that I think Mads Mikkelsen, I now... I, it's so bizarre to see Mads Mikkelsen play anything in, like, a humorous slant. It's always got a creepy undertone since he nailed the performance of Lecter. It, it, it right after, I think, the end of Hannibal, I, I, I went to um, Fantastic Fest, and they were running a, a comedy, a dark comedy with him in it, uh, called Men and Chicken, which I highly, it's, it's a bizarre film. Um, but it, 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 it's, it's, I highly recommend it if you can find it, but a, a Danish film called Men and Chicken, where he plays a, a compulsive masturbator with a hair lip. And, um, he, he and his brother, um, he and his brother are, are reunited or reunited with, uh, a couple of, um, a couple of, uh, kind of, uh, I guess the, uh, Danish version of Yokel half brothers. They never realized they had. Um, and it's, there are bits in it. There are bits in it where, uh, Mads Mickelson actually reminds me of Tom Baker of all people. Of course. <laughs> um, but it, it is, it is very, very different from the sort of things that I, you know, I think we're mainly in, in the United States, you know, in the Western European speaking, in the English speaking world, we're used to him playing like the creep, the, the Lashif uh, Hannibal type character, um, that it is kind of a, a weird thing to even see him in something like Rogue One, where he's not entirely a bad guy. He's on the bad side, but he's like the bad guy with the conscience. And it's just kind of weird seeing him in that. But the thing, uh, the thing about Hannibal that I always said is that if, if, if the ideal director for an episode of Hannibal would have been Dario Argento, because it is one of those shows that makes sense, more sense to the eye than to the brain. Yeah. You know, you, it, 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 it really, visually, I mean, if you actually think about a lot of stuff, it kind of begins to fall apart. Um, but it is something that's really very beautiful and the, that has this over, you know, this guiding visual aesthetic that I think ties it all together that I think is very beautiful. Um, but it is very different. It is very different take on the mythos. If you've, you know, read at Thomas Harris's novels or if you've seen the films, um, and to be honest, uh, you know, even the novels aren't the later novels aren't very good because he only wrote the Harris only wrote them because basically I think Dino did the De Laurentiis company basically said, look, you're if if you're going to you're if you don't write prequels or sequels about Hannibal Lecter, we'll just make up our own stuff. So as you can definitely tell in his in, in, in some of the stuff that his heart wasn't entirely with it in it. So it's very much. Interesting to see how Brian Fuller remixes a lot of these elements so that they don't quite have the sort of only in it for the money type thing that doing a straight up adaptation would have, you know, would have had. Yeah, I, I mean, I need to re, rewatch it just because I, when I all the time I'm watching it, I'm have, being a fan of the books and the films and, and whatnot. Um, I'm watching it and I'm comparing it too much to the source material and you will have to watch Hannibal as its own, its own thing. It's belongs in its own little timeline, much like Gotham. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've just got to watch it for what it is and just go and follow it 
the story that it's choosing to tell, not how it plays into anything else or who these characters are in the books or, or the films. You have to ignore all of that and just follow the series as and the story it's telling. Um, I right. think it's the best way to watch it. And certainly some mistake I made when I watched it um, is that I'm spending too much time comparing and, and not enough time just absorbing the story that's being told to me. Um, right. But uh, yeah, I think it's one that they keep saying they're going to they're going to do another season, which would obviously take us into Silence of the Lambs um, and obviously introduce it to Clarice, which I think would be really interesting to see. Um, and especially how the character Will would play into that as well. Right. Because um, obviously Will's story is done with Red Dragon in the books and he's not plays no further part. It then becomes Clarice's story. So. Obviously, see right. how they would go because I can't see them cutting Will out because he's become too, he's become too much of a twin star character with this version's Hannibal. Um, right. The the two sides of the same coin, so you couldn't really cut Will out of this universe. So how he would interact with Clarice, with the role he would play, is all really interesting sort of aspects there. So. Right. Yeah, that's pretty much it. What about you? Um, for myself, I mean, I haven't seen obviously a huge amount. I've been obviously watching Gotham season three on Netflix, trying to play catch up with there. Um, I've been really into rewatching Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and that show just stands up so well to multiple rewatches. There's so many things oh, yeah. to just like the second time around. And while I've just been sort of dipping in and out of the seasons, um, and just like revisiting favorite episodes, like uh, Enter Dayman, and um, mm-hmm. and like the episode where where Mac and Dennis move to the suburbs. <laughs> God, I love that one. Just, just watching Dennis in traffic going, you fat pig, you fat pig. Um, or just when they, the episode where they go to the water park. Um, oh my God, that is uh, <laughs> my favorite episode of the last few seasons. Yeah. Just um, whole thing. I, I love how they build up this whole thing in the episode about about Max saying that you can't don't don't ever don't ever like sit on one of like the water registers because uh, of like suck your intestines out of your anus and the very last shot of him is just with this shit eating grin on his face just bending <laughs> over one of those and the whole thing with uh you, you know with Charlie and uh with Charlie and Frank cutting that head of lines and all that. Oh my God. I love that episode. Oh, and it's even like the ones, even ones we didn't mention in the draft, like the, I think it's like the start of season three and, uh, Frank and, and Charlie get obsessed with collecting garbage. They believe is, is where for this. So they get to the point where they no longer can sleep in their apartment because it's just full of garbage. So they become street people and live in a dumpster. <laughs> oh God. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love always in Philadelphia. I'm still holding out for when all the stars align and we get a new season. I think that'd be great. Um, well, I know that uh, I, I know that Caitlin Olson's other show got canceled. Glenn mm-hmm. Howerton's got a show that just started. I don't think it's doing too well in the ratings, but I don't think it's formally canceled. But Caitlin had done a a show for two seasons and that just got canceled. There was a big uh, there was basically this gigantic axe that fell at Fox if they could bring back. uh, Oh, God, one but one last man standing. Oh, yes, Um, the, the Tim Allen one. And they they cut 
so many things that really there was a there were practically riots over the temporary cancellation of um Brooklyn Nine Nine. Yeah. Um, and that's got picked up somewhere else. And even even Gotham, they've announced that the next up the season of Gotham will be the last. Oh, I'm now bummed out because I didn't know that. <laughs> so no, we'll see what happens. Where it'll live on forever, even if it's just me in my basement making it. With the Probably cast I've, the cast that I've rounded up, like uh, like the collector. But uh, yeah, I mean that's it's, it's funny as well when you see. Obviously, um, obviously, in Philadelphia was created because they couldn't get jobs and they decided they were just going to go and make their own sitcom. And uh, when you see some of the people who've obviously been in it and then got on to other things like um, the lead Mac Poyle brother, he's uh-huh. in Westworld. Right. Um, obviously, Gilmo del Toro plays the head of the Mac Poyles. <laughs> <laughs> With a bird on his head, uh, which I didn't notice until you pointed that out. But yeah, um, speaking of Westworld, Westworld continues to be an incredibly surprising series. Um, I'm not obviously going to spoil it, and if you want to obviously keep up with uh, what's happening in Westworld, um, Jonathan Bonham on our home base, thatmomentin.com, he's currently doing the write-ups for each episode, and he's also covering a show which you recommended, Lucky, on the previous episode, The Terror. Um, he's been doing the write-ups for that as well, so cool. you can see what he's been making of it, but not to spoil anything on Westworld, but we are now into strange new waters. Um, we're currently working on 14 different timelines. There's multiple characters. This is like giving Game of Thrones a run for its money, just how ambitious this show has now become. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what the end game is for this one, because I have no idea where it's going to go yet. But there's lots of interesting things. And we are still obviously running our competition for someone to buy Lackey the box set so he can watch it as well. Um, yeah. Or buy him, buy him some HBO. Yeah, buy me, but you know, just uh, buy me a year of HBO. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, there are a couple things I know. I know that they've introduced a couple of other parks. Um, yes, we've um, we've introduced Raj World, uh, which is the Maharaja. Um, right. And right. Uh, now uh, Colonial India. Yes, and uh, we've now got um, the Samurai World. Which has uh, just been introduced as well, and uh, it's it's funny when um, this is one of the things that they had because of the, in this backstory they have like limited amount of time to write all the stories for the park, and they go into the samurai world and they realize that many of the storylines mirror the ones which unfold in Westworld, and uh-huh. so they actually put up a shot by shot comparison of. A sequence which happens in Westworld in season one and the scene that's replayed in Samurai World in season two. And just uh-huh. it's just so funny to see how they've done it and how they changed certain characters out so they actually match the Samurai World. It was uh it's a really clever piece of filmmaking. Um, um well remember uh Magnificent Seven is a remake of what? Seven Samurai. Samurai. Yeah. It's even worse uh, than oh. Jimbo. Yeah, Jimbo becomes like uh Fistful of Dollars, and then it becomes Last Man Standing, the Bruce Willis movie that nobody watched. Uh, I'll take your word for that, because I didn't watch it. Yeah, it's uh, directed by Walter Hill. Um, That's but, probably why I didn't watch it. But, <laughs> but yeah, Jimbo's <laughs> remade so many times. Yeah. Um, on the more lighter side of things, we've got a show over here in the UK called Carnage, um, 
which I think is one of the most beautiful things to come out of Mad Max making stupid amounts of money in the box office. Uh, basically, Carnage is um, a show where teams of engineers, they are given free reign to build Mad Max-style vehicles and engage in destruction derby-style competition. And basically, you can have any vehicle you want and you just Mad Max the hell out of it. You put spikes and weapons and paintball guns. And we've seen, like, so far we've seen a hearse, we've seen a jag, um, a London taxi cab, an ice cream truck. And uh, it's one of the shows I'm looking forward to season two. Because obviously mm-hmm. this first season, everyone's sort of like learning what the limits are. And I know that someone's watching it going, I could totally top that. And I'm really especially looking for if they do the American remake. Because I know there's going to be some like crazy guys out in the South or some guy who's funded by Tony Stark who's going to come up with some really interesting looking vehicles. But yeah. Is, 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 is this show hosted by the Top Gear people? Particularly um, the guy who looks like Brian May of Queen. <laughs> no, it's not. It's uh, it's hosted by Freddie Flintoff of all people. It's Who, Freddie Flintoff. Uh, he's a cricket player, but he's he's currently on disguise contract, so he he turns on okay. different shows. We've got Lethal Bizzle, the the rapper, and uh, you've got this female presenter who I, I don't know where she's come from, but they're all really good. They're all it's all really interesting, and they basically. The boss trucks that they have. They've reached... Have you seen the Death Race remake? The Paul W.S. Anderson one? No. Okay. Well, in the remake, uh, they have this big truck called the Leviathan. And they basically remade it for the show. And it's the whole purpose is just to ram into stuff. But, yeah, it's a really great show. Things, uh, if you like Mad Max and cars smashing into each other, it truly delivers. And it's probably one of the best Sunday night viewings you can get. I watched that and... uh, Jack and Ozzy's latest uh, road trip, which has also been great just to watch um, Jack constantly tell Ozzy he's an old man and retired because Black Sabbath have called it a day for the moment. And uh, to see Ozzy constantly uh, pestered by this cursed doll that they pick up in New Orleans called Robert. Um, So seeing Ozzy Osbourne engage in a constant battle of wills with this doll is just fantastic as well. So, and uh, just seeing Ozzy Osbourne, just how knowledgeable about history him and Jack are. It's astounding. Um, and also, if you want to ever see the Prince of Darkness, go to this arc that they built somewhere in America. They built a, uh, a replica arc. Yeah, we have a... Um, I'm assuming that it's the um, it's the Creationist Museum. I think it is. Uh, that that they, they built in uh, uh, the middle of Kansas or, or, or somewhere uh, like in the Dust Bowl, or not like entirely like the Heartland, but not really the South, I don't think. Mm. But like one of the sort of conservative Southern Midwest states. I, I want to say it's like Missouri or or yeah. uh, Kansas. They built this um this uh, Australian fundamentalist guy um, who's done. Uh, he's done. I think he's done debates with. Uh, Bill Nye and, and Dawkins and he's uh, he built a creationist museum uh, and then he was going to build a, a life-size replica of Noah's Ark. Yeah, it's uh, it certainly looks cool, but it's just really funny seeing all these like Christians there uh, out on the, their day out to the, the replica Ark, which I think I, think I wouldn't I want to go and see and I'm not even particularly religious, but seeing Ozzy Osbourne wandering around there of all people, it's 
Kind of like when you see Marilyn Manson go on his tour of Italian uh, cathedrals. Uh-huh. So. Oh, I guess it is in, I guess it is in Kentucky. Cool. Oh, well, I guess it is in the South. Um, I mean, that's about it for myself. Um, just on the old podcast watch, though, um, there is a new, newish, shall I say, um, cult TV podcast called Bad Reception Podcast who recently talked about Erie, Indiana, which is how they came to my attention. And they also mentioned on this episode the likes of Are You Afraid of the Dark and Goosebumps. And, uh, yeah, they're really good. When If you run out of – if you're tired of waiting for episodes of this show to come out, you know, you can go and give them a listen and uh, keep your talk, TV fix. Um, obviously, all our previous episodes are slowly being uploaded to thatmomentin.com, so you can listen to them through the site, listen to them through Podomatic, or you can also listen to them on Spotify. If you just look for thatmomentin.com, you can get the whole network on there and uh, listen to not only our shows, but also Game Warp, um, Cinema Recall, and the Asian Cinema Film Club. And uh, speaking of which, we recently were on uh, Cinema Recall. We had the gathering of the network, and we were talking about Fess, which I think we were saying before we came on was a very fun time. Other than that, in the podcast scene, we got a couple of... I've been really into sort of like uh paranormal and just ever myths and things so there's the that's weird podcast which is kind of like if daria made a podcast it's very strange mad world and also brave girls club whose episode on disneyland had loads of really interesting facts about just how dark that place surprisingly is Uh uh-huh um but that's about it um so I think without further ado, we're probably best moving on to the first of our selections this evening, which is uh, Goodness Gracious Me. This is a show picked by myself to cover. If you haven't obviously heard the show, this is a BBC comedy, um, which is uh, basically in a way is a is a uh, British Asian collective uh, comprised of Shanjiu Bashir, uh, Govinda Gear, uh, Mira Cyril, who I had such a crush on as a child <laughs> and uh nina wadia who i think i also had a crush on as well so this show is great for more than one reasons and this show ran from 1998 to 2001 it did actually start off as a bbc4 radio show uh which ran from 96 to 98 same as like league of gentlemen and yep it's one of those shows that they start off a radio show and then they brought it across and made it a live action and basically it, the show's hinges on their their portrayal of um salvation culture in britain as well as uh not only their own heritage uh they post fun of but just also how uh indian and pakistani people are often perceived culturally and for myself it bridged in many ways a lot of sort of gaps between between obviously white culture and uh, Asian culture, which at the time of this being released, there was quite a divide. And I felt this, this actually provided this sort of bridge between the two. Um, when I actually moved to Birmingham, which has got very strong Asian community, I was told that uh, there are people who in the community who didn't see it the same way and found that it played off stereotypes and was kind of offensive. But, you know, I thought it was funny. And I thought because it's Asian actors who are writing and producing the show themselves, they would surely be the ones to decide what's offensive and what's not. But, I mean, like, I mean, I'm right in saying this was your first experience with Goodness Gracious Me. I had never even heard of this, this series, which uh, 
I, I was kind of, I probably shouldn't have been surprised, but I was kind of surprised. Like, oh, I've never heard of this. And uh, it, the, the thing that I really, really dug about, about Goodness Gracious Me is how it sort of plays the kind of like the reverses, kind of like the, uh, kind of like reflects kind of like the, 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 uh, like the British, like the white British stereotypes and the white, uh, and the Asian, the British, the Anglo, Caucasian stereotypes and the Anglo-Indian, the Anglo-Eurasian stereotypes kind of back at each other. The, um, I did some research and apparently the, um, uh, and it's not part of this episode, but the, um, uh, the, 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 probably the big famous sketch for goodness gracious me apparently is this one, uh, that's known as, uh, going out for an English. Yes. Uh, which, uh, and basically, which, um, basically a group of Indian, uh, people go out to uh, uh, a restaurant in Delhi uh, that is basically kind of like uh, uh, how um, Asian cuisine is like kind of um, advertised and positioned and marketed and branded as exotic. And you're going to have these boorish sort of, uh, you know, white Anglos come in and they're, I want the hottest thing on the menu. And um, so they have this sort of exotic, uh, Sort of English restaurant in, in Delhi at these, the, you know, Indian patrons come in, you know, and one guy orders 27 plates of chips. And, uh, <laughs> I want the blandest thing on the menu. <laughs> that was, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh, that really sort of, I really sort of dug how, um, it, it sort of played those stereotypes, you know, back at each other. The, uh, the one of the ones that really stuck in my mind was this sketch where uh, a, a young Indian, uh, a young Anglo Indian uh, who has been, uh, you know, he's, you know, apparently born and raised in Britain, goes back to his more traditionalist parents trying to explain to them that he's gay and um, that he's living with his partner who is white. And it's, no, I'm sleeping. I'm sleeping with him. And they're like, well, Morgan and Y slept with each other. <laughs> You know, until uh, until of course the punchline comes in that the, they're just they're not offended that he's gay. They're offended that he hasn't settled down with a nice Indian boy. Yeah. Um, oh, those yeah. sorts of things, and then you have these um, wonderful recurring characters like uh, the, the 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 mother who says that no matter what it is that she never wants to buy it at a store or get it at a restaurant because she can make it at home. Or the uh, the uncle who's like, you didn't tell me you were going on a holiday. I could get it for you cheaper. And he, he just shows up at the most ridiculous places. He shows up at a funeral. You didn't tell me you needed a funeral. I could have done it for you cheaper. And he's, he's like, shows up on the riser when the, when the casket is being drawn in, I, I assume, for like a cremation. Yeah. And it was just, I just cracked up. It was... um. Uh, you really kind of get this, uh, it, it's this sort of style of humor, which is very kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of specific, but it's also kind of universal. Um, it reminds me of, uh, there was a sketch that was done a few years ago on, you guys get, uh, Saturday Night Live over there, right? Uh, no, we don't actually get Saturday Night. We know what it is, but we don't. We don't get it as such. We just get like bits and pieces uh, from it that, that come across. The um, one of the recurring sketches they have on Saturday Night Live is called Black Jeopardy. And Black Jeopardy 
always in, inevitably has, you know, it's a parody of Jeopardy, um, two black contestants and one white contestant, although the one they did a few months ago where they had two black contestants and then uh, Prince T'Challa, Black Panther, <laughs> um, in the, the, the traditional white person space. The idea is, is that you'll have all these categories that, you know, reflect like black culture and black thinking. And they had Tom Hanks playing a redneck with a Make America Great Again cap on. And the entire point of the whole thing was... You know, like how all the questions, he would answer the questions and they would be completely dead on, Um, which would just basically kind of show how similar, like, the white working class redneck, quote unquote, experiences from the black urban, uh, you know, quote unquote, you know, working class experience is. And that's what this kind of style of humor really reminded me of. Um, particularly with like, because I've, you know, I've, I've, you know, I, I've, just about everybody, you know, in America knows a guy who will say, well, you should have me do that. You didn't need to go get that done professionally. You should have come to me for it type of thing. It's not always necessarily the uncle, but most of us know some kind of fixer guy. Yeah. You know, and uh, I assume the same thing. I assume the same thing goes for Britain. No matter what your 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 ethnic background, your racial background, I, I think a lot of these kind of communities are are really kind of the same the whole world round. Um, and and that's the sort of thing. And I mean, you had to have the more culturally specific ones, like the the six million rupee man. Um. Or the one I really enjoyed, which is the one where the, the, the father finally gets his children a pet, but they, he doesn't want to get them a dog because it's a filthy animal, and he doesn't want to give them a cat because it's a filthy animal. He gets them a pet cow because it does its business outside. <laughs> he puts a cow flap in the door, and, of course, somebody people come in and rob the house. Um, That sort of thing. But there's... um. You, you know, the thing that really kind of, I thought this, you know, I, I've mentioned just about every sketch here. Um, but it, it, it does, like I said, it's, 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 it's the sort of thing where it's like, it's specific, but in the other hand, it's really relatable. Yeah, it's, I mean, goodness gracious me, I mean, as you mentioned already, I mean, I think it's one of the shows that's remembered most fondly for the going out for the English. And you're right to say, I mean, it was based on the fact that you used to have, like, English lads night out where they would like order too many poppadoms and doesn't order the most insane spicy things the menu would be rude to each and it's perfectly reflected in that in they just twist it and do like the English version so I would say it's just like 24 portions of chips um, yeah the most the stronger option on the menu is to order steak and kidney pie which I think is always pretty inspired but yeah I mean um, Indian food traditionally is more about colour and flavour it's not about spice the only reason they make it spicy is because the English uh, palate they they like it spicy and that's why you have things like the Gunga Din and Baal uh, Baal uh-huh. if you know up to speed is a storm god and it, when they make it they have to wear a gas mask because it's that incredibly potent the spices and you can get that in the brick, brick house in New York you want to go and challenge yourself? One of the things that I noticed when I was in Britain about 15 years ago was how much more popular uh, 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 Sichuan cuisine, Mongolian cuisine was, which is um, several notches up from in, 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 uh, in terms of spiciness, 
from from you know uh, Chinese quote unquote Chinese food, which you know is probably about as Chinese as a uh, a game of Chinese whispers, but. Um, you know, like your plates, like Mongolian chicken, Szechuan chicken. I was a little bit, I was a little bit, I shouldn't say surprised, but I guess understanding that the, uh, the, the, for the longest time, the, the British, uh, palate was basically based around taking about the most dead common foods you could find and just boiling the crap out of them. <laughs> we're in starchy, we're in starch and stodge. Uh, yeah. Because it's so bloody cold here, you need something to keep you warm. And it depends where you are as well in, in, in England, because certain parts of England have, like, their specialities. Um, like, the furthest south is Cornwall, which is pasties, uh, which is uh, pastry and, and stuffed, stuffed with meat and veg, because it's all about what mileage used to take. You go to the north, it's all pies. Um, mm-hmm. And it, as I say, it becomes more stodgier the further north you get. But yeah, I mean, it's weird when you think of British cuisine. Our favourite meals are, um, like our top rating meals is curry, which, you know, is Indian. Who can forget that classic right. British dish? But we've now opted as our own, same as spaghetti bolognese, which is obviously Italian. <laughs> but we see this uh-huh. as being very British foods because we're very... we it's very like very much a cultural melting pot of here. So we have bringing a lot of these, these cultures and then we adapt them to sort of suit the British palate. So that's why you have like Indian cuisine being in having these insane spice levels and things, because that's what British people want, want from it. But uh, yeah. I mean, and, obviously- and we've over here, we've tended to do the same thing with like uh, Mexican food and, um, uh, you know, other, other foods from uh, Latin America. Um, yeah. We're not quite we're not quite as stodgy. Um, American cuisine isn't quite as stodgy as British cuisine. Uh, it, it, for example, I don't think it ever would have occurred to an American to deep fry a Mars bar the way it would have occurred to a Scotsman. Um, <laughs> that is not just a Mars bar; they deep fry anything. I've seen deep fried pizza. It doesn't seem one day he's like sitting around going, "You know what else we can use this for?" <laughs> So, well, uh, I, I finally just had the, the the idea. I somebody finally just uh, you know, with all the Deadpool references going around, somebody actually finally you know explained a chimichanga to me, and I'm like, that's like heaven. <laughs> yeah. Deep fried burrito—that's a wish your heart makes. Come on. Oh, well, there used to be a, a, a the market I used to go to used to have a sandwich called the Heart Stopper, which is a uh, egg and bacon sandwich that's then deep fried, so it's essentially on fried bread. So this thing is like caked in grease, but that's what. You, oh my god, that sounds heavenly. Yeah, so uh, there's a reason they call it the Heart Stopper. <laughs> well, yeah, I could, just you're just describing. I just feel my arteries harden. Yeah, that's what that's what we like over here. Well, this grease. is my last. This is my last podcast as co-host here because um, I'm going to die of a heart attack, <laughs> um, and they're just going to find pure lard in my veins. It's all going to be because of this discussion. Uh, yeah. Oh my God, heart stopper! I got to go back to Britain. Wow. But um, on the episode we watched, they actually do the rough guide to Britain, where they have Indian tourists come over and they talk about British culture and. <laughs> They're like, oh, everyone was like looking at us, and it's probably because we're such like uh, cutting edge Indians, and it's like, no, they're just there in like head to toe like British flag 
themed outfits. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I'm like, I really like the guy who had the spiritual awakening and converted to C of E and stayed on in Britain when everybody else came home. Yes. It's like all those like all those stories of people you would hear who, from Britain or America or Canada who went and went hitchhiking in in, in the in Eurasia in the sixties and basically stopped at an ashram and that's never left. <laughs> you know <laughs> that was great. Yeah. I that mean, was that's like that that that's like white album era Beatles in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I mean the show is obviously famous for is it used to include musical numbers. Um as the later seasons they got they did some more ones that were like based on popular songs like they did uh they were the Black Top Men, which is obviously Men in Black. Uh they did Punjabi People, which is a cover of Pulp's Common People. Uh yeah, uh, they yeah did and Oh, cool. Which is Wild um, Scrub Tropicana. Yeah, as someone who finds Pulp uh, completely and utterly um, insufferable, I'm really looking forward to getting to that common people, Perry. It's funny. I was watching a, a documentary series called The 90s, and they were talking about 90s music, and they were saying that Britpop basically came in the aftermath of Nirvana, and we thought, what, and like grunge, and it's sort of like, where well, we felt that after grunge, like, these light-hearted, uh, upbeat, sort of rocky pop songs from Britain. That's that's a good way to go forwards from here. So yeah, and then and then Blur broke up because Damon Albarn, um, because Graham Coxon really got into Nirvana, and that he couldn't he, he came to loggerheads with Albarn, and they couldn't uh, agree on anything. Yeah, um, but you know the nineties did give us Xenials our our dark side of the moon with. Uh, Okay, computer. Oh yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously, uh, with goodness gracious me, I mean, this is a show that was like so, such a part of my comedy upbringing. I mean, I used to watch this, and I used to watch Red Dwarf, and like After Scouts, that used to be like the Friday night comedy block. This used to be included in, and it's great the fact that it still holds up. And something I actually appreciate a bit more now. I'm a bit older and stuff, but like you said, I mean, this these characters. They're so relatable to because, as you said, they're often just like the Asian version of that guy you know. Such so as like, as we said, we've got Uncle Fixer, we've got, um, uh, and like the parents, uh, sort of character. Like, if there's ever a joke which is more sort of culturally based, they very cleverly work in the explanation for it. Such so as like, why does a father buy a cow? And it's like, well, we don't have like cats and dogs because. Where Asian, we believe that these are filthy animals, but it does it in a very subtle way that you're able to keep yeah. the joke. I love the fact it's not just a cow; it's a cow with mad cow disease, so it's yes. it making weird noises. But and and I love that when it dies, they have this cow <laughs> cow sized shoebox they bury it in, <laughs> which just... is that that is the ultimate. That is like the ultimate relatable humor because that is what that is what shoeboxes are for. They're for burying your dead pets every yeah. kid knows this every kid well i every kid who has a yard i guess uh i guess if you didn't grow up if you grew up in a council estate or an apartment block i guess not but if you grew up in a house you know you you have you know you you, you your, your pet rabbit your pet cat dies your pet turtle you stick it in a, in a shoebox an old shoebox and you bury it in the backyard it's every this is that's your local pet cemetery <laughs> It's um 
I mean, the whole scene, I mean, it's obviously got these these crazy things, such as they're trying to play frisbee with a cow. Or <laughs> the fetch! Yeah, and I think this is where Mina Savell really comes into her own, because she was always plays, like, the classy characters. I mean, she has a character where she plays, like, a showbiz reporter who's, like, catchphrases, meow, pussycats. Um, <laughs> and Mina Savell was always played, like, the classy sort of roles, the same way that, like, John Cleese and Monty Python played the authoritarian roles. Right. Um, she's always, like, plays, like, the uh, the classy of the showbiz sort of roles. And, um in this one, this particular sketch, she's like the frustrated housewife, and the scene where she's there cleaning up after the cow, because you know if you take your dogs apart, you put it in the little bag. So she's there with this bin bag, bin like <laughs> of cow shit, trying to put it into the dog, the dog shit. Oh bin. yeah. While while they're playing uh, size of a cow by the wonder stuff on the sound, <laughs> yeah, which really just I think makes makes the whole scene, the whole montage. Mm. But, I mean, as we mentioned already, I mean, the key sort of skip for this one, the reason I wanted to look at it, was the one million rupee man, which obviously anyone up to date on their trans, on their, uh, on their exchange rate knows that rupees are not worth, worth what they say. Uh, oh. much like our contract, which sees us being paid in leaves. <laughs> and it just, David, our took to the forest and goes, look at all this money we're paying you in. And it's like, you work out what leaves are worth, so we're planning to burn down the forest after this recording to balance it out. Oh yeah, yeah, we'll become extremely rich. <laughs> <laughs> but just the fact that they've got the million rupee man, so all his amazing powers are just very basic. Such so as so, if his his mission that he's on is to go to the corner shop and buy some sugar, and he's like, "Oh, I see you got sugar there. I saw it with my bionic eye." Oh, I don't need a bag. I have my bionic arm. And they're playing the sound effect. The flange. Uh, $6 million man sound effect while he's picking up the bag of sugar. The two-pound bag of sugar in this slow motion. Yes, my bionic can allows me to pick up small items at groceries. <laughs> As you say, he does it in like, this really dramatic way. Uh, <laughs> And then the the punchline for the thing is sort of like, oh, we got no stairs to the coffee. He's like, yes, we made your legs out of them. And he just collapses. What, what do you think you're standing on? What do you think you're standing on? What, you turned them into the floor? No, we turned them into your bionic legs. Collapse. Uh, yeah. This, I, I mean, I love the fact, with goodness gracious me, I mean, a lot of the characters they didn't replace, so they would go hard for one episode. Uh, so just like, in this case, it's the father who brings on the cow. But other characters such as like, the mother who claims she can make a fin, Uncle Fixer. They would bring them back. We've got the two, uh, the two, um, I don't know how you call them. They're kind of like uh, Punjabi street toughs who think they're, they're yeah, the they're, Oprah Winfrey. They, yeah, they're, uh, I, I guess the, I, I understand what kind of stereotype they were going for. I guess they would be like the Asian version of jabs, I guess, with yeah. the tracksuits. And always saying in it, you know, with the really heavy kind of like, you know, Cockney accent. And it's. Yeah. Um, I think, you know. The Bangra Muffins, uh, this person. The Bangra. Yeah, I think that's what the uh, the Wikipedia article. And then again, we, uh, you know, in America, that's a stereotype, you know, we have as well with, you know, the track suits and all that. But and the, the exaggerated hand motions, which are supposed to look like. 
gang sign, trying to, someone trying to throw gang signs, you know. The thing I love about this, I mean, this is Shanjin Fashir and Kuvia Nagria, who are just, they're just vibing off each other. They work really well together, um, the same way that Miriam Savo worked well with uh, Bashir as well. And they did actually go off and do their own show called uh, The Kumars, which is basically a... The, the, the Kumars at number 42? Yes. That one I've heard of. I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. Uh, which was basically a chat show, but they're playing these these comical characters. Apparently, it's a bit... So Miriam Bashir basically plays this... Uh, this this kid who's who's got his own chat show for whatever reason and is he's hosting his family's house and uh, Marina Ciro played like the the odd grandma for some reason she played the uh, the old the old grandma character um, but yeah I mean Bashir and Gear they play really well for each other and I love the fact that these two idiots have these wonderful moments of enlightenment as they're trying to figure out Oprah Winfrey's role in society um, oh yeah. Anything where you can just, and this was the thing that I always loved about the young ones, is is how it could just basically take a series of, and not that these are, it, it not in good gracious me that they're like stupid gross out jokes or anything, but it's it, it's not particularly thoughtful humor up to a point, and then all of a sudden they just throw like philosophy in there for like one minute, <laughs> and then it's back to them, you know. You know, that's what I thought was absolutely brilliant about that uh, that sketch. I don't remember what it was, but they were they're just they're just sitting there and they're talking about Oprah and who would win in a fight, Oprah or Montel. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, what's what's Oprah's role in society? Yeah. And then they're back to and then they're back to whatever, you know, idiocy, you know, and they obviously the punchline being they bought opera tickets thinking they were Oprah tickets. I didn't even know she was in the country. And it <laughs> Oprah's so white. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, I mean the the musical. I think as I think the only thing we haven't really mentioned this was uh, the the comedy song in this one. And this one's about Asian guys who date white women and then leave them so they can have arranged marriages to keep their parents happy. Um, uh-huh. And in this one, we've got Amanda Holden playing the the jilted uh, girlfriend of this guy, and then we've got Mina Sorrell playing this local village girl um, who's being married off and you have this back and forth as they're singing as they're like saying how they view the uh, perspective but does a man hold delivered the line I want to nail his steal his to, to the floor oh god yeah and this is a parody of um this is a parody of I know him so well from uh oh god what was that uh Jesus Christ Superstar I think Okay, and it, it sounded like it, it was, but I couldn't I couldn't place it. It's not one of the more sort of obvious ones, but yeah, just seeing just how it comes goes together. And you see the venom of the ex girlfriend compared to the naivety of this uh, this girl who he, who he's going to be marrying. And uh-huh. he's like, oh, I hope he's not had a lot of girlfriends, but I will forgive him because he's my husband. My husband, yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, and she Amanda Holden's character is basically cursing him out, which is just funny in itself. So I'd like to nail screw him to the floor. God. Um, but yeah, I mean the the series itself it it ran for several seasons. They did a special in India, uh, uh-huh. which memorably had the uh, skit um, Indian Speed Bump, which is an elephant. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
but uh, yeah, I, I really like Goodness Gracious Me. I've not, prior to watching in this episode, um, I've not seen it in quite a while, and it's good to know that it still holds up. Because a lot uh-huh. of things, as we've, we've obviously looked at before, don't uh, hold up for whatever reason, and it makes me, I don't know if I want to bring it, see it brought back, um, especially now when this age remakes, it seems, where anything's being remade, like, we just had the announcement, we've seen the first clips of Thundercats, which they've, they're they bringing back, and they've screwed up. Uh, they, I mean, from, it, it looks like they've made it look like uh, Steven Universe. Yeah, and um, Animaniacs is coming back, and I mean, I really hope they don't screw that one up. So. Oh, they will. They will. Uh, but yeah, I they will. If you've uh, if you like British comedy, um, I would definitely recommend checking out Goodness Gracious Me. Um, there's another great skit called Skip into the Punjabi Kangaroo, which is basically an episode of Skippy voiceover. Uh, so he's now <laughs> he's now drunk. Um, uh, but Shinji Bashir, um, that's one of his favorite things. He he was like a really into parodying sort of like the culture he grew up with. Like he's a big Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fan, and I know he was. Uh, he did this whole piece where he was like saying, like arguing for it being the greatest book. Um, uh-huh. And you can see a lot of his things he's gone on to do are very sort of based in like his upbringing in wow. British culture. It's like very well, much based around it. So Kumar's at number 42. So 42. Yes. I've only just got that. Wow. <laughs> learn something new every day. And, uh, Unless you've got anything else to add to this, I think we're... No, uh, I, think I'm, uh, I think I'm about to talk down on goodness gracious me. No. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, when we return, though, we will be looking at our second section of this evening as we look at slightly dark material of Brass Eye. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Recall Podcast here at ThatMomentIn.com. I am your host, Laverne, and on each episode, myself, along with a guest, we'll be talking about an iconic scene from a classic movie, which films will we be discussing? Well, that's all up to you. Because before each episode airs, we're going to be giving you a poll of great flits to choose from. Whichever one gets the most votes, that's the one we'll be talking about. So, listen to the Cinema Recall Podcast on the site thatmomentin.com or on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Podomatic, or SoundCloud. Thank you very much, and hope you enjoy it. And we're back. You, of course, are still listening to TV Good Sleep Bad here on the That Moment In Podcast Network. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like or subscribe buttons if you're listening to us on iTunes or Podomatic or Spotify. Um, all the That Moment In Podcast uh, Network shows are available on Spotify if you just type in thatmomentin.com. Um, or turn, you can also just listen for it via uh, the actual webpage, thatmomentin.com. Uh, Please do leave us some comments. Let us know what you think of the show or shows you wouldn't see us cover on the show. It's uh, all appreciated and uh, any sort of feedback and ratings only help us get the show more noticed and out there, uh, which is always a good thing. But we are on to our second section of the evening, which is now Brass Eye. And I felt that we may not have seen this episode after we looked at Snuffbox on the last one. And I don't know if it's the fact we're just now tempting fate, but... I feel that uh, <laughs> Brass Eye is, again, one of those shows which has got a legacy for being controversial. And this is 
should be a very little surprise because this is a show helmed by Chris Morris, the sort of chief anarchist of British comedy scene. And really, if we're looking at uh, in terms of the British comedy legacy, we have like the likes of um, Alexis Sale and Rick Mel and sort of the young ones and bottom sort of uh, era. And then we have uh, the likes of Chris Morris and Amanda Lucci, who kind of followed in their wake and picked up, and they in turn created uh, Brass Eye. Now, Brass Eye is really the original fake news in a way, and the show itself is basically it's only six episodes long. It's a real short show uh, season, and they're basically fake news programs. So each one focuses on a different subject, be it drugs or sex or decline. Um, and they really sort of hit the high watermark for offending everyone by doing a paedophile special called Peter Geddon, which I have a feeling we may discuss in a future episode, but tonight we're talking about the episode Drugs, which is probably one of the more con- most controversial episodes of the original season. But, I mean, Lucky, you chose for us to look at Brass Eye. Um, why do you not like us having jobs? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I don't. It was kind of an accident in that I uh, I ended up picking, and yes, I did deliberately pick the um, the, the 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 snuffbox episode for that particular um, sketch. It is this is the sort of humor that I'm really into. It's it's the sort of I like I like humor that is dangerous and controversial, and I think that's one of the I I don't. I don't like it when comedy is, 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 is cozy and comfortable. I don't think that's what comedy's for. Um, so I'm always kind of attracted to these things. Like, like I've said, um, you know, I, you know, I look at other comedies I've brought up in the past, like, uh, you know, always sunny, always sunny is, is, is may not necessarily be as controversial, but it's still, you know, fairly dark and fairly cutting. Um, and this is um, this is just the same, this is just the sort of thing where we're we're at a point now where you know I first heard of Chris Morris um, probably I mean Chris Morris is not a well known figure over over here and I think probably any most Americans who know who Chris Morris is basically know that he was um, uh, Denholm on uh, on the IT crowd yeah um, and. Um, you know, over over in Britain, like like you mentioned, he's got that. Uh, you know, he's got the connection to Armando Iannucci, and they've got the. Uh, I mean, they go back uh, that they that they created Alan, the character of Alan Part uh, Alan Partridge together. You know, so a lot of kind of like the things that I've been seeing in comedy recently um, from from things like, uh, you know, one of my favorite films the last 20 years, 24 hour party people, Steve Coogan, uh, playing Tony Wilson, the Manchester impresario doing this very, what I understand is basically he had modeled Alan Partridge on Tony, the real Tony Wilson. Um, but to kind of go on to this, uh, this is the sort of thing that I, I really think that uh, like, like the outer limits of what comedy is for, um, and we, um, this is almost the sort of thing that, that would be, uh, like, a almost kind of like an anti-comedy type thing. We have stuff like, uh, 
you know, the, like the American kind of take on this would be, I guess, maybe like an Eric Andre type figure. But th- this is like the original fake news, and it's this absolutely pitch perfect parody. And I was surprised. This show is, you know, over 20 years old of how it still sort of manages to capture the hysteria of the 24-hour news cycle, which is, to me, the thing that is destroying culture right now. This entire, our our entire world is going to shit. <laughs> largely because, largely, in, 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 you know, in taking a lot of them, a lot of the reason for it is, you know, because of, you know, this 24 hour news cycle where you've got to manufacture this news and you've got to, you've got to keep up this level of hysteria. And when Chris Morris comes on and he plays these characters who are like, they talk in very quick sound bites. They say things that don't make sense. They, they obviously, anybody who can obvious, anybody who has eyes to see can tell that they're talking out of their ass, but they just sound so authoritative. Like, I love the beginning where he's go walking through this, very obvious kind of set stage thing where he's talking about all these people. He's getting all these games. He's drunk. That man over there smoking a crack. And, you know, it, it just, you know, going through all this sort of hysteria. And it's, it's, it's like, you can basically, it's, it's a great sort of demonstration of the, of the, of the, 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 the old saw that you can just basically get anybody to believe anything. If it just sounded authoritative enough, um, and and it's it's it, there isn't uh, you, you know and and one thing that really struck me when in this watching and uh, of this episode the drugs episode is is that some of these characters there's this character in particular that he plays about halfway through the episode where he's talking to this woman and he's got this like dial of like good or bad it's like heroin good or bad cocaine good or bad you know and it's like. This is Alex Jones type stuff. This character is not all that that you know re, you know removed from the sort of people that we put on the internet that are on the internet or on the radio or on Fox News or even on other channels that are here. You know, and and just the fun of this episode is just watching them like go through bullshit, all this bullshit, like this great scene where it's kind of like this sort of a man on the street thing where they're following Chris, Chris Morris, who's dressed up in a diaper. <laughs> um, he's holding a teddy bear. He's wearing a camouflage tank top and he's wearing something, something on his head. And he's going up to people who look like he, that he thinks, I guess, and he's asking for the, like these obviously fake drugs. He's asking them for triple sod and Jessup, Jessup, Jessup and Shatner's bassoon and all this stuff. And it, it's just, it's just so, it's it just so bizarre. And then he gets these people who, um, I, I, I can't, I can't state that I recognized every person in, in some of these, these things, but it's like Rolf Harris. I know who Rolf Harris is. I've heard of Rolf Harris. I've heard of Noel Edmund. You know, and, and it's like, are these people on, and on the joke, is that an actual MP? Does he actually think that this cake is a real drug? You know, and he's, you know, there's this, you know, this, this scene where he's, um, you know, Chris Morris is, is coming, you know, is, is, is operating as this, um, member of a, 
and I, I don't know what I, I can't remember. Don't remember what all the initials stand for, but like this, the, the, these these anti drug organizations that the initials basically stand for fucked and bombed. <laughs> you know, and somehow they, they they have this guy who's apparently an MP for Basildon, which <laughs> all I know about Basildon is from where Depeche Mode is from. You know, and and apparently they actually get him to like talk about this complete fake drug. In a session of Parliament, you know, and it, it's just like, what yeah. am I? Am, is, is this a joke or is this where does the joke end and the reality begin? I think this is the, the beauty of Brass Eye because it he constantly walks that line. Uh, as you said, this is fake news, and there's so many people I know who've like turned it on, not realizing what the show was and thought it was real, such as uh, they've got. There's a, a very popular one uh, called uh, where Clive Anderson, who is a talk show host, they yep. supposedly cut the program midway through to go to an urgent news bulletin. And he's apparently decapitating Noel Edmonds and he's holding <laughs> siege on top of on top of his house. And the only thing that obviously differentiates the fact that this is a fake news broadcast is the fact that the news broadcaster has got troll hair. <laughs> and that's the only thing that they're going to do to tell you it's not real. But anyone who's watching it isn't going to pick up on that. And that's why I love with Morris is the fact that he puts things out there and he they present facts that have got like an, a, a hint of truth to them, but they're so caked in fantasy. Uh, but again, like you said, the way he presents it is so matter of fact that you question, could that be true? Um in particular, I mean, the whole focus of the episode on drugs is this drug known as cake, which uh, comes in 12-inch yellow tablets. And if we're to believe it, uh, the effects cause the girl to, dr- to throw up her own pelvis. <laughs> um, and it affects a part of the brain known as Shatner's bassoon. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, you mentioned already the fact that he's there uh, and he's talking to, he's on, he, he's talking to drug dealers on the street. And this just shows the balls of Morris. He's going to real drug dealers and asking him for these make it, made-up drugs. Um, under the pretense that in the voiceover we're told that there's so many drugs today that even drug dealers can't keep up with them. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the celebrity endorsement, so to speak, where we have Rolf Harris, the now convicted uh, child molester. We've got Bernard, Bernard um, Manning, who is a was a working man's comic he's known for like his very racist style of humor uh <laughs> which is very much of his time we've got bruno brooks who was uh brought up on charges of domestic assault so uh yeah there's some real scumbags there in that line oh, awesome. but these were all like major celebrities of the time uh yeah, for, so bernard manning the what the feeling i get about bernard manning was that he was his age's equivalent of um larry the cable guy yes. or uh like a like a Jeff Foxworth, like you might be a redneck if type the the sort of um white working class you know somebody who you know an American Trump voter yeah you know he, would. the thing with Manning is he came when he came was coming up is very much of its period this is the thing that's very key to remember and he was coming came up for the working men's club scene so racist jokes and calling people the n word and use of word packy and all these sort of derogatory sort of things were very much of that 
that scene. And now we look back at it and it's all sort of shock and awe because, you know, you don't call people these things and it's not socially acceptable. But that's what he came. But he has so many interesting lines such as, like, you know who makes this? Sick fuckers. That's it. <laughs> Uh, and the fact that they believe that, you know, this 12-inch <laughs> pill is the actual size it comes in. Uh, and nobody ever stops question it. Apart from, like, uh, we've got Noel Edmonds, who's a variety show host. He hosts the British version of Deal or No Deal over here. And, um, yeah, the fact he's going through it, through, like, this document they've given him, and taking it very seriously, you can tell, because he actually wants to admit parts of what they're saying. So. Uh, it was always kind of astounding when you look at the people that they had on on the show and the fact that they believed they were actually saying they were doing a good thing, that they were actually being part of this noble cause, but it was all complete uh, rubbish, such as like the Pedophile episode where we got Phil Collins, who's fighting for the cause of nonsense. <laughs> now, 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 Noel Edmonds, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, Noel Edmonds was like, yeah, he's like a game show, but he also like hosted stuff like the um Oh god, what do they do? They do it every year. Children in need. Um I believe he's involved he was involved in it. Um Yeah, he would host stuff like that and like kid shows, like multicolored swap shop or something like yeah, that. He came up he did swap shop. You know, so that that's why, you know, they would put a game show host in kind of that position. Um But yeah, it, it's it's just <laughs> I think the other I love the uh they show this this poem this documentary of this school where they encourage drug use. Um funnily enough, the school it's set is in Hampshire, which is where I live, so yay. Awesome <laughs> It's like Go oh. Hampshire. Awesome. Um, oh, and and that that oh god, and I and I have to part of that was the whole thing where they got the how they 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 the kind of like the scared straight thing with the with the girl how they want to try to, like, uh, get some sort of aversion therapy into kids, keep them from taking drugs. They tell her her parents died of a drug <laughs> overdose. Her parents, I, I didn't recognize the actress, but the actor I'm dead certain was Kevin Eldon. Um, and they just, they, just, like, they, just, like, they just, like, spend, like, five days drilling into her. Yeah, your parents are dead, and they died. If they were Your parents were gigantic alcoholics. Uh, they were gigantic drug dealers. And um, they they were total junkies and all that. <laughs> and it's like, and then we reunited them a couple days later, and they're like, the parents are like on one side of the sofa, and the girls on the other side. She's just the actors. Is there's like this thing where you can basically make yourself compress yourself. There's this, this trick you can do to compress yourself to make sure like you take up as little space as possible. Um, and that's what she's doing. She's just trying to cake up. She doesn't want any any part of her body anywhere near her parents. And I just thought that was brilliant. And um, oh, they 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 have so much stuff with like with school kids, and it's sort of like, oh, we've um, <laughs> it's like one in ten children is going to be a drug user. So we've replaced we've represented this by replacing. <laughs> Then we've like four children <laughs> aged four. It, 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 was, it was yeah, it was something like uh, hey, it's like one out of every ten, one out of every ten, or three out of every ten school of these school kids will grow up, grow up to be. But we don't want to traumatize them, so we're replacing each of them with three five year olds. <laughs> you have Chris Chris Morris going through. You're a junkie. You're a junkie. You're a pothead. You're a smackhead. You're fine. I want to know how they got where they got these kids for. 
<laughs> I don't think you can you can like go and say, oh, we want to take your class and we want to film this fake skit about drugs. Um, what's best? They have Brian from Space here playing the uh, the junkie that they've got on staff. <laughs> it's in this little cell, and uh, they give him a medical speedball, so they show the the positives of high. Then they wa- have the kids watch him as he goes for his detox, um, and it goes dark. And, uh, and then later on, he wears a pet of mine, wears his head for no reason I can figure out. Um, and and oh god, just all these just various things. Like there's the one scene where Chris Morris is on like a playground and he's pointing at these random kids. You're an addict, and you're an addict, and you're an addict. And they're cutting back and forth. They're cutting these pictures of like uh, cutting in this these this footage of uh, like public figures. Like I think I saw John Major or Tony Blair in there, and it's just like oh god, we could never get this sort of thing on television in America, it would be sued into oblivion. Well, I mean, doesn't even like how will they look at British law? Um, such as like, uh, the explains that the possession of drugs without physical contact and the exchange of drugs through a mandrel, are perfectly legal in the English <laughs> system. And you think you've got drug dealers with their drugs in little balloons that they're walking along past the police. Um, I mean, this episode has been described by Professor Michael Gossip as the illustrative of the ease in which anti-drug hysteria can be invoked in the United Kingdom. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean... It, it's it's just... Let's <sighs> just say, I mean, this is a show that gave us the definition of good AIDS versus bad AIDS. So good AIDS is yep. if you got it from a contaminated blood transfusion, and bad AIDS is if you got it through sexual activity or drug abuse. Um... <laughs> This is a scene which Chris Morris' character is arm wrestling again with uh, Brian from Space, who's now playing a guy who's got AIDS, and he Luke beats him, Chris Morris in an arm wrestling, and he goes, look, he's got AIDS, and he can still beat me, and then he finds out why he has AIDS, and he completely turns to this guy, and he's like, why is a gunman bursting in and shot you? Anyone yawning would have caught AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, just... And every so often, they'll throw something where you can tell... A little bit of a sign of its satire, where he's saying, like, later on you see him shooting smack. And I, I, I shoot smack recreationally, but what about people who can't handle it? People who are more working class than me, or black, or people who aren't as working, people who aren't as middle class as me, or people who are black. And it's just like, oh boy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this show was obviously spawned off the day today, uh, which again is just more essentially more of the same, but it was more sort of a news desk, and that's where the Alan Partridge character came from, as you mentioned already. Um, after Brass Eye, we, a lot of people were like, well, that was dark, and then Chris Morris was like, you know, I can go darker still. If you want to see the true blackness of Chris Morris's, of what he considers to be funny, you want to see a show called Jam. Now, Jam is, again, it's a skit show, and it's Verges on not being uncomfortable, but going past that, and then soundtrack to the music of Aphex Twin. Um, <laughs> okay. One of the opening skits and, uh, includes a woman dancing apparently to a ray flight, which actually turns out to be her baby's heart monitor. Oh, God. Um, we've got Kilroy Silk, who is a talk show host, apparently going insane in a shopping mall, which shows him running around naked and peeing on things. 
Um, my favorite skit from Jam was actually a woman singing "Loving You Is Easy Because You're Beautiful" while up a tree and being hit in the ass with a space hopper. That's the whole context of the joke. There's nothing else to it. Um, so yeah, and uh, from there, he then went on to target hipsters and teamed with the then unknown Charlie Brooker, who did actually do writing for Brass Eye as well. Yep, yep, uh, I know where this is going. And they did Nathan I know Barley. Where this is going, Nathan Barley. Um, which I personally, I I don't find funny. My brother finds it hysterical for some reason, but I I just don't get it. So it's on the list of things I eventually want to see. (laughs) God. Uh, yeah, we, we can set, we're going to talk about the day today at some point. We're going to talk about Nathan Barley. And if we truly tire of, (laughs) of having successful careers here on the network, we're going to look at jam. Um, I mean, Morris would obviously go on to do free, or Lions, which uh-huh. was... It was it is his response to the Islamic terrorist threat, and he said that it was essentially how the Nazis were portrayed in a lower low. They're dangerous, but they're idiots. Right. Um, Four Lions, I think, is fantastic. I think it's really I, smart, I've, satirical work. I have never seen that. There's a there's something for you to, uh, to look up. It's well worth checking out. Um... And, uh, yeah, I think Chris Morris is, I mean, he's still doing director work. I mean, he turns up here and there, but he's a very sort of private person. And the only time he really gave interviews was when he was promoting Four Lions. And the rest of the time, he sort of lives his very sort of secretive life. I mean, he, we only know bits and pieces. And uh, I think that's the way he prefers to be. Just this, like, this anarchic, forcing comedy. And the fact, he, the fact he's teamed up with Amando Alucci, who is himself another great anarchist of comedy um it is just sort of like this perfect storm when it comes to creating shows like day to day and and uh-huh. because they're so in tune with the source material and how to how to create fake news essentially that um that they sent they basically set the template for many of the things which followed such as things such as like charlie brooker stream wipe and tv go home and the uh-huh. only things that just basically followed in its wake, which is trying to copy him. But I think Morris is the only one who's still like brave enough to really go completely out there and push it, push it to its uh, its uncomfortable levels where you're not sure whether you should be laughing at it or not. I, I mean, definitely. I mean, and I, I've got to check out. I just, um, you know, we're talking about Yanucci, uh, and I, I a couple months ago I saw his uh, new film, uh, Death of Stalin. Mm, which, uh, yeah, which, um, you know, posits the, um, uh, posits the, uh, the, 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 uh, chaos following in the self-tied, the eponymous death of Stalin is basically a, uh, um, basically a black comedy, uh, a farce almost with, uh, Jeffrey Tambor and Michael Palin and Steve Buscemi playing these characters out of Russian history, but playing like with, um, you know, uh, Steve Buscemi playing, um, you know, Nikita Khrushchev the same way he plays every other character. <laughs> playing him, playing Khrushchev as if he were Mr. Pink in Reservoir Dogs. Nice. You know, and it's, 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 it's amazing. Um, but yeah, and definitely we've seen, we've seen with things like, um, obviously with Black Mirror and, um, to a lesser extent with Dead Set how far Charlie Brooker is. And I'm, 
you know, Charlie Brooker, I know, has done stuff like Screen Wipe and, and he's done columns and stuff like that. So I know he, he'll go out there. But um, one of these days, go back to Anucci, but uh, one of these days I've got to see Veep. Uh, I've even, I, I even understand that uh, uh, Morris has done some work on Veep. He's directed yeah. a few episodes, apparently. He's directed episodes of that. And I mean, obviously, I mean, Brooker, I mean, when he, I think he's essentially done what Brassai's done for technology when you look at Black Mirror. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Black Mirror is essentially Brassai just without the jokes. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah. it doesn't that seem sort of dark territory at times? And I think um, that's sort of why I for the sort of details of, of the situation. And certainly when we look at things like the Waldo effect, which uh, don't seem as funny now. No, 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 not, not, not since Brexit, not since we actually elected Waldo uh, president over here. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, that, that's not something that's funny anymore. That, that's something that was, if I remember correctly, my original write-ups, that's the one I thought was too outlandish. Oh, I was a naive one back in my early forties. <laughs> uh, um, anything else you want to talk about this one? I, I don't think I could if I wanted to anymore. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, this brings us to the end of another exciting edition of TV Good Sleep Bad. Uh, thank you as always for listening. And if, uh, as you said, if you haven't done already, please do uh, hit those like subscribe buttons wherever you happen to be listening to us, be it Podomatic, iTunes, Spotify or even through thatmoney.com. Uh, the full archives are there. Um, on the next episode, though, Lucky, where would you like to go? Um, <clears throat> I'm going to do something a little less, uh, I guess, controversial and less likely to get us kicked off that moment in. Uh, uh, one show I've wanted to cover for a very long time, and one of my favorite shows the last you know, 15 years has been Fringe. And uh, in a current event, uh, apparently... Uh, there has been a significant wedding on your side of the pond recently. Really? <laughs> I couldn't tell. Yeah. <laughs> All uh-huh. these people suddenly showing up everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently, apparently, your 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 new Duchess of Sussex uh, used to be an actress, and she did an episode of Fringe. <laughs> uh, so we're doing the second season premiere of um of uh, of Fringe. Uh, called a new, I think it's called New Day in the Old Town. Um, it, it was written and directed by Akiva Goldsman. So get your uh, nipples on the bat suit joke out and get some over with, uh, as soon as you can. Um, but yeah, there was a point when it looked like, uh, they introduced a, a character named Amy Jessup and she's played by Meghan Markle. And this was right at the beginning of her, like, career. And they actually set her up. Uh, we actually thought she was going to be joining the cast as a, a regular cast member, and she just never did. And that was like one of the big mysteries. With what, whatever happened to her? And um, about six months ago, when I, you know, reared my head out of my my cave and actually paid attention to the world around me, and somebody said, "Yeah, yeah, Prince Harry's getting married. Who's he getting married to? Meghan Markle." Wait, the the woman who never joined the cast of Fringe? <laughs> Apparently, apparently she was on. Apparently, she spent several years on Suits, um, which I never noticed because I don't watch Suits. Um, yeah. So anyway, <laughs> that's a very long story to say. Finally, we're getting around to Fringe, and you can thank the royal family for that. Um, for myself, uh, we're going to be 
looking back at British public safety films, as we are going to be looking at the film uh, Apaches from 1977. And uh, we're going to be talking a bit about the how in British culture we basically were kept safe by having the sheer terror put into us of anything uh, around us. So uh, we're going to be looking at Apaches, which I believe they never made it over to America. Um, and so you never really had this culture for uh, health and safety films. No, Otherwise, uh, we, we had... I mean, we had, like, health and safety films, but uh, there doesn't seem to have been, like, this culture. There there was never anything like, um, like, I know the phrase protect and survive because it was the name of a Jethro Tull song. Um, but this is something I've always wanted to look into because uh, uh, it, apparently it, it was, um, apparently it scared British children shitless in the 70s and the 80s, these movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, these are, this is some of the most, uh, uh, th- this is really kind of um, imprinted on uh, several generations of British brains um, as being uh, some of the most memorable inadvertent horror films. Um, <laughs> That's certainly one way to put it. <laughs> and um, I, I've, I've always wanted to kind of look into this, um, like because, like I said, we never had anything. We 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 had we had we had Dick Van Dyke. Um, we had Dick Van Dyke doing public safety PSAs and they were about as, um, you know, inoffensive as anything, you know, Dick Van Dyke would do. Um, and you, you got a movie where you, you got to, you know, watch a movie as a kid where, uh, a kid didn't pay attention to railroad safety and got his legs cut off by a passing train. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is more fun things <laughs> of how we, uh, got this, this is, uh, this is, uh, we're we're changing the name of the podcast to uh, Little Ray of Sunshine Podcast. You're you're the the, the best uh, the the absolute best of uh, uh, life affirming and um, generally uplifting television history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, until next time, um, and thank you as always to my co-host, Miss Lackey. Always glad to be here. And uh, this is it. Sign off for another edition of uh, TV Goes Sleep Bad. Mind you, as always, to keep it strange.